You're listening to Behind the Scene at NTSB. My name is Leah Walton. And I'm Stephanie Shaw. Thank you for joining us as we talk with the people and learn more about the work being done here at NTSB. Welcome to episode 21 of Behind the Scene at NTSB. Today, Leah and I are excited to be joined by two of our senior human performance investigators in our Office of Highway Safety, Raphael Marshall and Kenny Bragg, to talk about the March 2017 crash in Concan, Texas. Raphael and Kenny, welcome. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So as customary with uh, behind the scene at NTSB, we like to start off by um, allowing our guests to give us a little background on how they came to the board and what they do at the board. So Raphael, can you start us off, please? Well, I actually applied at the board while I was working at, as a contractor with Federal Highway Administration. And what were you doing uh, there? Well, I was... Um, we were actually doing some basic research into senior drivers and some very uh, early research also on navigation devices and how that could affect drivers. Okay. So I applied at the board while I was still a graduate student uh, working at Federal Highway. And I was very lucky to uh, come at a time when fatigue was, uh, and, and it still is a very big issue, mm-hmm. And that was one of my that's uh, one of my expertise, and because of that, I was hired by the board, and I've been here for nineteen years now. Wow! Nice. And did you join the board in the office of highway safety, or did you come come into one of our other offices? No, I, I've always been in highway safety. Okay, okay. and Kenny, um, I came to the board almost six years ago. Um, I came from a law enforcement background. I retired as a police officer in a local agency in Maryland. And uh, in that capacity, I was a crash investigator. So I was doing some research related to a, uh, a series of crashes on the police department. And I encountered the board, and I was really intrigued by the work and applied, and here I sit. Great. Nice. Well, we're glad to have you. And it seems like we've been working with you for a lot longer than in six years, we get to we get to work with you a lot on uh, some of our highway safety issues and <laughs> yes, youth issues. So, so as Stephanie mentioned, today we're talking about Concan, Texas, which occurred in March of 2017. Can we're going to be getting into a lot of the details of of the crash? But would you um, give us a, kind of a high level overview of what occurred, when it occurred, and um, and then we'll dive into our our questions. Yeah. So. Uh, the crash occurred on March 29, 2017, and just briefly what happened was we had a 2007 uh, Dodge Ram 3500 pickup truck that was traveling north on U.S. Highway 83, uh, very close to Concon, Texas. As he was traveling north, the driver crossed the center line and collided head-on with a medium-sized bus that was built on a Ford 350 chassis. The medium-sized bus was occupied by a driver and 13 passengers. And because of the the crash, everyone on the bus but one passenger died. Um, That one passenger was seriously injured, as well as the pickup truck driver, who was also seriously injured. Uh, One thing that's uh, unique about this crash is that for almost 15 minutes, Uh, the uh, witnesses behind the truck driver had actually videotaped the driver's behavior and actions. So prior to the crash, we have video of how the driver was driving. And that was very useful information in our investigation. And for listeners, the video um, is available on the NTSB YouTube channel. So you can actually, I think, is it the full the full length of the video or, or just a few minutes of it? I know we released it, and it's been there since um, we had the board meeting on CONCAN. That I don't know. I don't know if uh, the full video is on our, our website, but it, um, it is on YouTube as well. And was that... Um when was that video provided to investigators? Was that um, available to you right when you arrived on scene, or was that something that was uh, made available later on? Well, we actually heard about the video while we were on scene, and we, I was able to interview uh, the two witnesses that took the video mm-hmm. and obtained the video itself uh, from them. Okay. Um, how common is it to have access of to video 
like that in, in an investigation that you all do? Um, this is the first time I've seen uh, a video of this length. Um, really? But we, we do have video um, at times of, um, of drivers prior to the crash because a lot of commercial vehicles actually mm -hmm. have in-dash videos that show the out, it's outward-facing and inward-facing. Mm -hmm. And we've actually done many uh, crashes um, where that has been very useful. Uh, one of the ones that come to mind is a bus crash that we did in San Jose, California, that where the video was just really vital in coming up with a, uh, a probable cause. And it's something that we've been asking for and advocating oh, been, for, for for years. It's actually we've been an issue on our most wanted list right years now. now. Yeah. Um, so when you arrived on scene, you were interviewing <clears throat> multiple folks. And um, it's, from what I recall from some of the reports, um, and as well as our report, the driver initially uh, admitted that he had been distracted by his cell phone. Is that is that correct? That's correct. Uh, after the crash occurred, the witness who had been taking the video, or at least one of them, mm -hmm. uh, approached the driver, and the driver had told him that he had been texting. Mm -hmm. And this is also something that he told uh, first responders. Okay. Now, his story changed a little bit. Um, the more interviews he was doing, he, he actually told one of the representatives from the DA, the district attorney mm -hmm. in that area, that um, he'd been... Um, checking his phone to see if his girlfriend had called him. Okay. To us, he just said he was just checking his phone for no reason. Um, so, so yeah, we that's one of the things that we we looked at, and we did that um, primarily by looking at the video. Mm -hmm. But we also, um, with the help of the Texas uh, Department of Public Safety, uh, did a, an extraction of his phone, and we actually also subpoenaed his phone records okay. to determine whether he was in fact on his phone. Okay. Uh, one of the other things we did was because we didn't actually have his phone here at the board, we actually bought an exemplar phone and tested that as well. So with all of this information, we were able to determine that he was not in fact texting at the time of the crash. Um, in fact, the last text he received and read was about an hour prior to the crash. Oh, okay. And we were also able to determine that he was not talking on his phone um, at the time of the crash. Now, we can't rule out the, that he was um, picking up his phone mm -hmm. or, or looking or maybe um, just turning it on or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Those things that we can't actually rule out. But we were able to rule out that he was texting or, or calling. Now, if you look at the video, mm -hmm. um, the evidence there does not... Um, suggest distraction, cell phone distraction, or anything like that. Because what it shows is a constant state of impairment. And, and, and that is not what you would see with somebody who's a distracted driver. In fact, what the video shows is that the driver had crossed over rumble strips and didn't react to them. Mm. Now, if you're a distracted driver, once you cross over rumble strips, you would usually quickly correct. And in this case, we did not see that happen. We saw a driver who had who would cross over um, the edge line, which had rumble strips, and continue across, or would cross over the center line rumble strips and would again continue across, not seeming to heed or even realize that rumble strips were there. Um, and as I mentioned, it was also a constant state of impairment, or um, and you wouldn't see that with a distracted or even a fatigued driver. Okay. You would usually see like intermittent impairment, and you would see some corrective action once a rumble strip is, is uh, encountered. Okay. So I know that you keep mentioning impairment, so I don't think we've, we've mentioned yet what we determine the probable cause of this crash to be. So um, Kenny or Raphael, do you want to... Um, we ruled out that he was not a distracted driver by use of his cell phone, um, but what did you determine? Well, I'm going, to, I'm going to actually read the text so mm -hmm. I won't make a mistake. So what we determined was that the probable cause of the Konkan, Texas crash was a failure of the pickup truck driver to control his vehicle due to impairment stemming from his use of marijuana in combination with misuse of a prescribed medication, clonazepam. Contributing to the severity of the, of the injuries uh, was the insufficient occupant protection provided by the lap 
belts worn by the drivers seated in the rear of the medium-sized bus. I want to um, I want to interject quickly here and just um, mention that December is Impaired Driving Prevention Month. It's um, pro uh, proclamation by the president. And um, there's a lot of awareness that's raised around impaired driving during the month of December. Um, and that's why we wanted to have this discussion today and release this podcast um, during Impaired Driving Prevention Month so that we ha could have a conversation about the seriousness and the dangers of impaired driving, not just by alcohol, but by drugs. Um, and I want to kind of merge into a, a a conversation about impairment and talk a little bit um, about the differences between, or differences and similarities, I suppose, um, that can be determined from impairment by alcohol versus drug, uh, marijuana or other drugs. I want to ask Kenny that question. So I, I think the first thing you remember is that alcohol is a drug. Mm -hmm. It's a CNS depressant. And in this case, so is clonazepam. It's a CNS depressant. So what we oh. tend to see is some of the same side effects. And he was on clonazepam. He was on clonazepam. And CNS in a in a is central nervous system. For anybody that doesn't yeah, know what the CNS, no problem. It's a central nervous system depressant. And so he was, he's, he, and he had polydrug use. Mm -hmm. That's more than one drug use. So he had the CNS, CNS depressant and as well as marijuana. And marijuana tends to have its own uh, classification. But all of these, each drug has a certain effect on the body, and those effects can be categorized according to the drug class. Can you give us an example of what that categorized meaning? So drug, drugs are, and this is for the purpose of the DRE program, the Drug Recognition Expert Program. Drugs are separated into seven separate drug categories. Mm -hmm. And each category has a, a different set of symptoms that are displayed in the body. And so in this instance, it would, with uh, a CNS depressant, you, you, you expect to see, you know, slow reaction to light. His pulse rate would go down, um, as would his, his uh, muscle tone would be flaccid. So as opposed to a CNS stimulant, you would expect to see a different, a different uh, set of symptoms in the body. So this is one of the things that the DRA used to determine or to identify um, what class of drug this person may have ingested. Okay. And for DRE is a drug recognition expert, which is something that law enforcement um, yes, gets it's trained specifically yes, it's a, for. It's an it's a officer who's been highly trained in recognizing drug impairment. And that's the lamest uh, explanation of what a DRE is. When you say um, highly trained, I imagine that or I know that law enforcement officers are all trained to some degree to detect impairment. Yes. Um, can you go into the different levels of training that different officers ha can have um, to detect drug impairment? Well, well, virtually all law enforcement officers are, changed, are trained in the standardized field sobriety tests, or SFSTs, mm -hmm. during the academy phase of training. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's just a basic uh battery of tests that an officer would perform roadside to identify someone who's under the influence primarily of alcohol. Mm -hmm. um, the next level of training would be A-Ride. Um, Which is advanced, advanced, uh, advanced Roadside Impaired Driving Enforcement, Yes, A-Ride. And so this is, this is a, an enhancement um, to the SFST program, and it basically points the officer to look at impairment sources other than alcohol. Mm -hmm. so, so it helps you consider some of the effects of drugs. And the, the, the highest level um, would be the DRE uh, expert. And, and again, this, this training um, enables an officer to do a pretty detailed analysis of a subject and through that analysis determine um, the, what effects are present from drug use. Kenny, for the SFST, I mean, you can see, you know, videos of police officers doing roadside tests of an alcohol-impaired driver, you know, all over the place. So what are some of the common things that an officer would identify for someone who was impaired by alcohol using the SFST? Well, I think that the, the biggest thing, and usually the first indicator, is the odor. Mm. You know, we, you know, although alcohol is 
is odorless, the cognitors of the, the manufacturing process, it creates a distinct odor. Mm -hmm. So when you, when, just like when you encounter someone who's had a lot to drink, you, you kind of say, oh, there's an, there's an odor. Yeah. So then the officer then begins to look at some of their, fear, their physical uh, abilities, you know, mm -hmm. the balance, their eye movement. And, and then that, that, so those observations have been formalized in the form of the, of the SFST. So in conducting an SFST, if an officer um, realized that maybe someone was impaired by something other than alcohol or something along with alcohol, what would be some of those indicators that might, um, you know, make their decision to call in a DRE expert? So you have, you have um, an impairment that can be explained. Like they, they, they don't smell like alcohol, but yet they can't, they don't have, they have very poor balance. Or maybe they're not, they're non-responsive, they just seem to be in a cloud. You know, these are not normally the, the signs of alcohol use that you, you encounter. So, and, and that's, a, that's the purpose of A-Ride, to say, hey, if you see something that's, that's unusual, you know, consider something other than alcohol. Okay. And when that happens, then the officer would then, um, under ideal circumstances, contact the DRE. And the DRE would typically respond, or they, would, they also would transport the subject away from the road um, to a more sterile environment, and they do their, their evaluation in, in those conditions. So around the country, is DRE a, a program that's in every, in every state, or, or does every police department um, have a DRE program, or is that, that unique in, in certain areas? Well, just like um, SFST, the, the program was developed through NHTSA and the IACP, International Chiefs of Police. Chiefs of Police. Uh, and so the program is it's it's used nationwide, it's standardized, and the 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 administrators of the program are pretty strict because they want to maintain the credibility of the program. Mm -hmm. So if if some officer, some agency is kind of going off the rails a little bit, it kind of it, it kind of becomes detrimental to the entire program. So there there are a lot of steps um, to to prevent that from happening. And the DRE training, um, I believe it's outlined in the in the report, um, but it's seventy two hours of classroom training, correct? Yes. And then how long um, in the field training? The, so the field training, and it's, it's kind of it's kind of hard to to say how long the field training is because it really de really depends on your ability to to find an impaired subject. Mm -hmm. So typically, okay. what they do is after the classroom portion, they pass that. Mm -hmm. They'll go into a, a local jail where people are often arrested under the influence, and then offer that, that person the opportunity to, to participate in, the, uh, in a DRE examination. And it's, it's surprising how many, how many people will, will agree to do it. There's willing subjects? Yes, there's <laughs> a lot of willing subjects. How, how does a law enforcement officer, are they selected to be to go to DRE training, or are, do they self-identify as someone who is just interested and wants to go further in the impairment? I, I think it's a combination of both. Okay. Um, just because a person wants to do it, mm -hmm. but doesn't necessarily mean they have the aptitude to do it. Okay. So when someone says, hey, I would like to be a DRE, that there has to be some type of screening to say, yeah, you'll be a good, you'll be a good candidate, or maybe you should mature a little bit as an officer before you do that. Um, in the report, oh, Ralph, were you going to say uh, something? I just, I just remember having a conversation with Kenny after he actually took the DRE course, and mm -hmm. he was telling me how difficult it really was because there was just so much information to, to learn. Kenny, were you, were you DRE trained when you were with the police department, or is that something that you've done since you came to so, the board? So um, when I was with the police department, I did, I did a lot of crash investigation. I was an operator for the breath test machine. Um, I was a field breath test, breath test operator. Mm -hmm. So I've had some experience with that. And that experience told me I didn't want any part of the DRE program. And, and the reason why is it's, I, I knew then that it was a lot. And I had, mm -hmm. you know, between that and some of the other things I had going on with the department, I had a lot going on. I said, I, I can't do it. It requires too much time. Mm -hmm. And so when I had the opportunity to audit the course with the NTSB, it confirmed what I thought. It's like, it, <laughs> it takes a lot to do this. And I, I, really I really commend any officer that can not only pass the training, but stay in it because... Once you, you, you pass the certification training, that training and those standards is ongoing. It never ends. So. Right. I was going to say, I know we've had some investigations where we've seen synthetic mar or drug, mm -hmm. drugs that have shown up in, in systems with the legalization of um, recreational use of marijuana around the country, the opioid um, crisis. How, how much of an impact does that have on those officers that are DRE trained? And because of those things and the kind of ever-changing drugs available, 
how how frequent do they have to kind of recertify or well one of the nuances with the synthetic drugs is it it, it presented some some challenges that that we had not previously seen um, so there's signs of impairment that we weren't quite used to so the the training had to you know adapt to the the new evolving situation and, and they're always evolving like they're all, they they're are, ever, yes manufacturers they're are changing. changing one little piece of the chemical and it's creating a whole new and a whole new drug class drug. And, and the, the the federal government has kind of responded by mm-hmm. instead of specifically identifying a drug, it now identi- identifies the, the the process of making a synthetic drug. Um, and the other the other challenge is, you know, you may you may experience one drug epidemic in in the District of Columbia, but mm-hmm. thirty five miles away in Baltimore, mm-hmm. you won't see it. So it's hard to develop a national standard for a problem that seems to be somewhat localized. Right, which is one of our recommendations, is to develop a common standard of practice for drug tox testing. Um, but, you know, the challenge is that identifying those, we can't we can't say, ident- you know, test for ABC, stop, because ABC might not be occurring, like you said, in one portion of the country versus another. But that's always been the case. I mean, e- even as a police officer, I, I had I don't think I'd ever made an arrest for methamphetamine. Never. Hmm. Um, but I made a lot of arrests for um, PCP or pencyclidine. Uh, I, I have a relative that's a, that's a police officer in um, Indiana. He always sees meth. He's never seen PCP. So, you know, the, we, we, we've had some experience in doing this with, with the uh, standard drugs, but hmm. You know, we can we can meet the challenge. Sure. So we we've talked about the drug use and, and we've talked about SFST and a little bit of alcohol um, impairment and testing for someone who is alcohol impaired. Um, we know that kind of around the country and looking at crash data that there we know there's drug use, but it doesn't exactly show up in our crash data as drugs other than alcohol impaired drivers. Um, we know some of that has to do with the fact that state laws, really, if you've been, you know, if you're found to be impaired by alcohol, they might just stop at that. There's no extra penalty for being impaired by alcohol and another drug. Um, Kenny, can you talk a little bit about um, the need for kind of across the country to really understand the other drug impaired driving situation across the country, how just stopping at an alcohol impaired driver might not really be helping us prevent alcohol and other drug impaired driving. Well, I think you've I think you've been po- you've pointed out a very important shortcoming. It's it's easy to identify alcohol use. Mm-hmm. I mean, we give them a breath test, we give them a blood test, and there's there's a number. You come up with a number, yeah. And that number you can easily rate relate to how impaired they are. The higher the number, the higher the impaired they are. When you talk about drug use, it's not that straightforward. Um, for instance, you know, if a person uses marijuana, um, you know, THC will show up in their blood weeks later, right. even past the point where they're no, they're no longer impaired. So you have to somehow develop a standard to identify, you know, what impaired means and what drug use means. Do you have... Um, so... I know we talked a little bit about kind of some states have a just a impaired driving law. Some states have alcohol impaired, some have drug impaired, some have a third class, but I can't think of what it is right yes. now. Um, so how did those affect really, I guess, preventing or addressing impaired driving in those states? Well, it goes to the theory is we can't treat a problem when we don't know how extensive the problem is. Mm-hmm. So if a state looks at impairment, just a person's impaired and doesn't take into consideration what they're impaired by, then how do you treat that issue? As mm-hmm. opposed to some states, you know, like you said, they have they take information on um, there's alcohol impairment, there's drug impairment, and then there's alcohol and drug impairment. So you know, the more detailed information we get, the better, the better understanding we can have of the extent of the problem, and then we can determine a strategy then to uh, to treat it. Sure. Yeah. In the state of Texas, uh, they 
define impairment as not just alcohol or, or drug. I mean, it's just one category, really. Mm-hmm. And I think this is a problem, and this is something that the states really need to look into because all the data they collect from these enforcement stops um, goes into NHTSA's database, the FARS database, especially if, if there's a, a fatality. Um, and unless unless we gather uh, more specific data on whether it's impairment by alcohol or impairment by drugs, we w- we can't realize how large the problem is right. and how to tackle it. Mm-hmm. Now, um, one of the things, this is sort of a segue, uh, but one of the other issues is resources mm-hmm. for, for law enforcement. Um, right now, we have um, tools to determine um, alcohol impairment. You know, there's breathalyzers, and there's actually, and, and NHTSA actually has guidelines on conforming products that uh, would, would accurately um, gauge how much alcohol somebody has in their, in their system. Um, but there, but NHTSA doesn't provide any um, guidelines right now uh, on um, roadside testing devices mm-hmm. uh, that would be able to identify drugs. Um, some states right now, about, I think about 10 states, are piloting roadside testing devices that would be able to identify certain classes of drugs. I think right now there's about five or six classifications that it would be able to identify. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, NHTSA hasn't provided much guidance on this, although they have done some testing. They just haven't released their, um, their report yet on this. But um, what are those? What what are examples of kind of those devices? What are they? I, we we know that you you know blowing into the to the device to determine a blood alcohol concentration, but is that the same for other drugs or is it? Well, the these oral. I, I guess the most popular types of um, of these um, roadside testing devices are oral fluid testing devices, and there's actually uh, two right now that are are commonly used: the Draker five thousand and the Allaire DDS two. Um, and these have been found to be um, to be pretty um, reliable. I'm not saying that these are the only ones that are reliable, but these are the ones that are mostly used right now. And how um, many drugs do those test for? Because I know some of the tests um, have different drug. First of all, different drugs that they test for, but then also a different number of drugs that they test for. Right. Um, well, I think these devices. I think the Draker actually has uh, six classifications okay. of drugs um, that it tests for. The Allaire has five, I believe. Um, what's commonly um, identified is um, marijuana, cocaine, mm-hmm. benzodiazepines, um, methamphetamines, um, opiates. But they're just they're just designed to test for the presence of they, of the the drug that's in in the, in a system, right? They're they're not. So just because you might take have one of these tests and it show up that you have these drugs in your system, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're impaired That's by right. them. So That's it's just right. it testing just shows for the presence. That the, the drugs are present, and it's a really a preliminary test. Um, of course, hopefully there was a reason for the for that driver to have been uh, stopped in the first place. Now, if uh, if the presence if the drug is is detected, that's mm-hmm. when. Um, that driver may be taken to a station and be evaluated by uh, somebody who has DRE experience. And sometimes so, you know, even I, they have their, they may have, depending on the state, they might have their blood drawn as well for testing. That's at roadside? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are actually some states that um, are piloting um, roadside blood draws. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess one of the states that comes to mind is Arizona. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually have officers who are trained phlebotomists who actually are trained to uh, take blood at, on the roadside. Mm-hmm. And they have to have a minimum number of um, blood draws uh, every month, um, or actually maybe every, every um, three months. Um, so they, they are actually, um, and, and there are other states such as uh, Illinois that are also piloting. Uh, another that. thing that Arizona has done is to streamline the, uh, they streamline the warrant, the warrant process, obtaining a search warrant, which, you know, this all, even the, the NHTSA standard points to a bigger problem. And we, we have to understand that when, when law enforcement officers, um, when they use this, these, these methods, it has to withstand the test in court. Mm-hmm. And, the, you know, the, the criminal standard is pretty significant. So you know that's and that's the that's the problem with using a device that although it it, it identifies drug use, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't does it identify impairment, and you know does it is it 
does it meet the reliable standard testing that you can present it in a court of law? You know, and that's a, that's a challenge. Kenny, can you walk us through a little bit? Um, we've had the opportunity to observe, you know, sobriety checkpoints. So we've seen a little bit in a, a handful of times of kind of what that looks like. But can you, so an officer would actually have to do all of the SFT and document signs of impairment before they can even get to a point of testing, you know, doing a breathalyzer test, correct? So um, I, can, I can describe Maryland pretty, okay. pretty thoroughly. Um, so let's talk about a, a driver who's impaired by alcohol or who an officer suspects is impaired by alcohol. Um, he would do a roadside um, SFST or field sobriety test. Um, if the officer determined or that, that, you know, this, this person exhibits signs of being impairment, he can then take that, he would then take that subject to a police facility and he would um, submit, have them submit to um, a breath test. The breath, the breath test um, has to be administered by uh, another officer. Even if that officer, the arresting officer, is, if he's certified to be a breath test operator, he can't do his own test. So they try to make it so you, you, you maintain some type of you know, independent clarity. So once the breath test is administered, let's say he comes above the legal limit. Um, then, you know, the officer would charge him and um, most, most often he will, you know, allow someone to come and pick up that person because he's normally charged on a traffic citation. Now, if it's extenuating circumstances like this person is a repeat offender or this person has is, is hurt someone in a crash, then that person may be taken to a district court commissioner and then the, com the commissioner will determine if this person should post bail before being released. Um, now, it, same officer's same stop, but now you have an, a subject impaired by alcohol. The process just got a lot more by dr another by, a drug, sorry, by other, a drug than other than alcohol. Mm -hmm. Then the process just became a bit more complicated. So you know, you still take this person to a station. You still have them put on uh, a breath test machine. Mm -hmm. And you know, if it's just drugs, then that would um, that test would come back negative. So even if that person was under the influence of another CNS depressant, that test will specifically identify alcohol. So comes back zero, but he still shows signs of impairment. That's when the DRE would come in, and the DRE is going to do a 12-step examination. He's going to he's going to look at blood pressure. It's going to look at pupil size, eye movement. He's going to look at muscle plasticity. He's going to determine their ability to do just simple maneuvers, you know? and then he's going to he's going to give them divided attention tests. Then then that officer is going to write an opinion as to what he's what he's under the influence of. Um, depending on the circumstance of the, the arrest, he may or may not have to submit to a blood, a blood test. And so you were you were mentioning you know THC can be in someone's system for a while, and and just because it's in their system doesn't equal impairment. Um, thinking about the fact that there isn't kind of a roadside breathalyzer yet for determining drugs other than alcohol. Um, how how soon after you pulled over pull, or identified someone being impaired by another drug would you expect that they, that you would have to draw blood or a sample like that to really be able to determine at that point if if the drug that they were, were taking or the drugs in their system really were impairing um so it taking into consideration if you know some areas are more remote you know if it's if you're unfortunate enough to get pulled over across the street from a police station, you're going to be, you're going to be tested pretty quickly. But if you're, if you're 45 minutes away from a DRE officer, then, you know, it'll, it'll take a while. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, you also have to understand that drugs uh, metabolize in the body at different rates. Right. So depending on when, when the, the drug was, was ingested, we'll determining how quick, how quickly um, that those, those effects become um, apparent. Sure. And for alcohol impairment, I know, like we mentioned, go, seeing officers and, and you talking to us many times, explaining this to us, I know that off a few of the times we've seen you, you kind of describe to us, oh, based on that or their their level of, of impairment right now, you can tell kind of, oh, they just ingested alcohol or it's been a while since they were drinking. Yes. It doesn't seem that that's as straightforward when there's a, a drug in their system that's other than alcohol. They may not all... Yeah. Exhibit symptoms this the same way exactly, and remember we're talking about you know seven different drug classes. Each have have very specific you know traits and how they they metabolize. So 
it's, it's really it's really hard to determine sometimes when they ingested the drugs. But the important thing is, if you can document successfully the signs of impairment, and that's where the DRE comes in. Mm-hmm. And you know, the there's a couple of DS, DREs that I'm aware of, like Mike Rose. I'm going to call him out by name. <laughs> Mike Rose is a very good DRE, you know, and. To, to see Mike to go on the stand, he's very convincing. Mm-hmm. And so and he's had a great deal of success uh, in getting convictions um, for drivers impaired by drugs. You mentioned um, that DREs, you know, they may not be immediately in the area um, of an, a location where a driver potentially impaired or suspected to be impaired by drugs um, is located. And Raphael, you uh, mentioned the the fact that resources um, play a part in terms of DRE availability. Um, in the report, it it came out that Texas had a pretty low percentage of DREs in the state. Is that am I? That's correct. Uh, Texas, well, even for a ride trained officers, mm-hmm. uh, Texas has a pretty low amount. I think nationwide, there's about 10% of officers are A-Ride trained. Okay. Um, in Texas, I believe it's about 5%. Okay. And for DREs, it's about the same. We have uh, nationwide about 1.2% of officers are DRE trained. But in Texas, it's only about um, 0.6%. Okay. So we, we have actually created um, or, yeah, um, made recommendations to to Texas Mm -hmm. to, you know, that we hope will increase the number of DRE and A-RIDE trained officers there. And with with an increase, if they were to take the recommendation and implement it with the increased A-RIDE trained officers and DRE trained officers, um, how or could that um, lower the number of impaired driving crashes? Uh, We believe, well, I'll use this this accident as an example. Mm Uh, this driver had been stopped uh, with, you know, let's say in the past uh, two years, he'd been stopped about eight times, I believe, okay. by, by officers. And we determined that in two of the stops, well, actually in three of the stops, the officer was not A-ride trained. Hmm. One, and one of the stops um, occurred because the driver had gotten into a similar accident as he did in 2017. In 2015, he had again crossed the center line mm-hmm. um, and hit another vehicle head-on. And luckily, that didn't cause any fatalities. And um, and he at that time, he actually said that he, again, was texting. Oh. Um, that officer who, who made that stop um, was not uh, A-Ride trained. Mm-hmm. Now... This driver, from from the evidence that we gathered, was a chronic drug abuser. So, I guess my my point is, uh, had there been had there been more people in Texas trained in a ride or in um, drug evaluation and classification, um, you know, drivers like this one uh, may have been identified sooner. Sure. And I think one thing kind of to follow on that is that in in this investigation, we identified that Texas has the highest number of alcohol and drug impaired driving Mm -hmm. crashes in the nation, Mm -hmm. yet their arrests for that had had decreased. So it's it's decreased by almost half in the past five years. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they actually expect more drug um, drug impaired crashes and fatalities in, in the upcoming year. So it's. So there definitely is a need for more A-RIDE and DRE-trained officers in Texas. It's, it's a big state, and, um, and it's always going to be kind of difficult to, to get um, blood tests done in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. But having more A-RIDE and, and DRE-trained officers will help in, in increasing the number of drivers who are impaired. Um, sorry. It, it would um, increase the number of uh, drivers who, uh, who are arrested who are, happen to be impaired. Out of curiosity, um, how accessible is the A-RIDE training and the DRE training for officers? It, it really depends on the agency and, and the region. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's, let's compare two different agencies. Um, we're going to use the, the Sheriff Department. We're in Concan, Texas. And then we compare them with the city of Chicago. Okay. You know, city, city of Chicago has, you know, they have a lot of gun violence. Mm-hmm. You know, so the bulk of their resources are likely to go there. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have another agency where it's much slower, then they can commit more resources 
to this type of enforcement. So the, the struggle has always been to find a balance, what, you know, what works, balance what works for the community, um, balance what works for the police, police department. Mm-hmm. And the good, the good news is it's, you know, the training is usually free, I believe. A-Ride or DRE or both? Both. Both. Yes. Um, because the, the training is, is put on and coordinated by, uh, NHTSA by and the ICP. governor's office of highway safety. I mean, the oh, uh, IACP. Sorry. <laughs> and do you, um, I should know this since I worked at NHTSA and I worked right across the aisle from um, my colleagues in the law enforcement and justice services, but I can't recall because it's been a few years. Does NHTSA or um, IACP or GHSA um, put these trainings on annually? Is it, um, do they do they do it multi-times a year? Is it just in one location in the state? Do you know? Uh, typically, is it, uh, you know, each state is different, but typically it's it's a couple times a year, mm-hmm. um, and but it, it depends on the need of the state, um, and it depends on, on on how willing police departments are to participate. I mean, ICP can go into a state and, and offer the training, but if and and understanding that if if an agency wants to have a DRE program, it's a it's a huge commitment. Mm. So you know, is that going to be a priority for that agency? Sure, I think. Um you know, we've talked a lot about impairment and, and the driver and his impairment here in, in the CONCAN crash. Um, but as we're talking about DRE and A-RIDE and some of the countermeasures that we know really do work at addressing specifically alcohol-impaired driving, um, sobriety checkpoints, ignition interlocks for all offenders, mm-hmm. um, those sorts of things, uh, DUI courts for repeat offenders so that they can get the treatment that they need and, and through specialized courts. Um But one of the things that we identified in this crash was really that, like you were saying, if they're trying to allocate resources, but their their data in their state isn't telling them that they have a drug-impaired driving problem, then they're not likely to allocate the resources maybe to send officers to DRE training or A-RIDE training. And I know one of the the countermeasures that we called out was this idea of the national standard for for drug testing. And we've mentioned it a little bit, but I don't Mm -hmm. think we really talked about what does that look like? What 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 are we asking when we say that we want um, a common standard of toxicology testing? So when you consider um, the information a police department uses to to determine if they have a, a impaired driving problem, if that information is not thorough, then they're they're not getting an accurate picture. So one of the things that um, standard testing protocol does, it would ensure that that all tests are collecting the same data, standardized data. So mm-hmm. the same data that's collected in California would be collecting be collecting in Texas, Maryland, wherever. So based on that information, mm-hmm. then we can make a we can make a determination of what the real the real dry, drug use t- trends are, and we can respond accordingly through policy. Yeah, I, th- I think. Um I think you're you're referring to a, a recommendation that we made previously when it comes to uh, toxicology testing, and just a little bit of background. We from from our previous investigations, we found out that toxicology labs don't always use the same thresholds. Mm-hmm. They don't always test for the same drugs, and and because of this, this obviously down the road will affect the data that's collected by NHTSA and by the states. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's the reason why we we've actually uh, called for a standardized toxicology testing um, throughout the nation. And just for um, historical purposes, that recommendation was issued originally in 2012, um, and I think it's been reiterated two times now. Um, I might be wrong on that. Um, but it is something, and when we reiterate, and I don't want to, I don't want to answer this question. I want Raphael to answer the question. Why do we reiterate recommendations? Um, and when do we reiterate recommendations? Um, (laughs) we reiterate recommendations when we, I I think there's really a couple of reasons why we do it. Mm -hmm. Um, the first is if we see it again, if we see this issue again, Um, and it, it has, um, it, it, it goes into our probable cause or into some of the findings from, from the report and we see, and we see it as a, um, an ongoing issue. We would reiterate it to bring attention to the, to the issue. Mm -hmm. And, and the other reason is 
in many cases, um, the recipients that we, we provide these recommendations to might not be acting in a timely manner. Mm. And so this is sort of like to kind of nudge them a little bit mm -hmm. um, to, to take action on this recommendation. So uh, in, in one case that I know that's uh, sort of um, infamous, um, we re and I don't know, even know if it's still open, but we, we, reiterated, we reiterated the, um, I think, the collision warning uh, recommendation we made, gosh, probably 10 times or so. Because NHTSA mm -hmm. hadn't taken action on it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think they've finally taken some action uh, mm -hmm. in this area. But um, it, it's really a, um, a tool we have to nudge recipients mm -hmm. and to bring attention to an issue that we believe is really important. Sure, Absolutely. Which might be a great segue into our occupant protection discussion yes. from, from this crash. So while you know the cause of the crash was a drug-impaired driver, um, unfortunately, the people that were in the vehicle that was hit by, by him suffered fatal injury and in one case, serious injury because mm -hmm. they didn't have the best occupant protection available to them. So in this case, they were in a, in a bus that was equipped with seat belts, lap, lap, lap belts, lap belts mm -hmm. um, that actually kind of, I, th I think, correct me if I'm wrong, actually contributed to kind of the severity of some of their, their injuries because of the way their bodies were able to move in, during the crash um, and the way that they were restrained. Well, that's right. The, the <laughs> mid-sized bus was equipped with lap belts. Now, I have to say that they're not actually required mm -hmm. on mid-sized buses. Mm -hmm. So in this case, it's, I mean, it's a plus to um, the, um, the church who actually bought the bus to actually have the lap belts installed. However... Um, what we realized is that although it was equipped with lap belts, um, shoulder, uh, lap shoulder belts would have been better because it would have distributed the forces mm -hmm. um, um, throughout the body of the passengers instead of um, focusing them on the, the lower mm -hmm. um, part of, of the passenger's body, especially around the areas where there was uh, soft tissue. Sure, so, and like the toxicology recommendation that we were talking about reiterating, this was not the first time that we have looked at occupant protection issues in mid-sized buses or buses. So oh, for yeah. we've long advo advocated and recommended the need to install lap shoulder belts on all mm -hmm. passenger vehicles. I mean, it may be useful to point out um, how many people were on the bus and how many people were injured. Yeah, there was uh, 14 people on the bus and all but one passenger died. Mm -hmm. And even that passenger um, had very serious injuries to her abdomen. Mm -hmm. um, one of the other issues we, we saw uh, with the installation of the lap belts was that the anchorage points of the lap belts were very close together um, to each other. And, and that caused um, a lot of pinching and scissoring actions around the around the lower areas, and so that actually also caused some of the injuries. So that's one of the recommendations we made as well, is that for the anchorage points to be a space further apart. Sure. Okay. Is, is there a standard for, for installing lap belts? I mean, has NHTSA developed some type of standard? The, there are standards uh, for larger buses, mm -hmm. but not for medium-sized buses like this one. Which I think the recommendation um, is connected to that. That's correct. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to just touch, and I'm going back to the impairment side, um, but the crashes that we investigate um, when it comes to alcohol or other drug impairment, and I just think that it's important to say that in recent years, we've been investigating more drug impairment um, crashes than, than alcohol. But I, you know, we investigate the really large, you know, multi, sometimes multi-vehicle, many people involved. But I think, again, since it's Impaired Driving Prevention Month, it's important to mention that 29 people per day lose their lives as a result of impaired driving crashes. And that's just in, you know, you know single or, or two vehicle collisions. Um, and I, I don't really know where I'm going with that other than just kind of reiterating that, you know, we, we investigate the very large scale, big crashes that you hear about on, you know, on the news, but daily there are so many people that are losing their lives to impaired driving crashes. Which is a completely preventable Yes, 100% preventable. And so when you look at um, 
the fatalities every year, you know, more than 30,000 fatalities every year. And we know that a third of them right now Mm -hmm. are caused by alcohol impaired drivers. And we know that as, you know, drug use and the legalization of, of marijuana, that more people will be potentially driving with impairing substances in their in their system. So we're hoping that we can help call attention to this and maybe prevent many of those things from happening before we start to see, you know, spikes in the wrong direction. We mm-hmm. did have a couple of years where highway fatalities were increasing. increasing. I think last year we actually saw a little bit of a decline, mm-hmm. but would hate to think that, you know, as drug use is changing around the country, that, that we would again see that that number, you know, rise. And we are, you know, it's a good segue because we are seeing more and more states legalizing uh, marijuana use uh, recreationally as well as medicinally. And Kenny, you and I have talked about, you know, the impact that that will have um, on transportation and, and traffic. Um, how can or how have, if you know, how have law enforcement um, in these states that are legalizing marijuana, how are they kind of preparing or are they seeing um, a change in their impaired driving crash crashes due to marijuana? Police, police agencies um, would, would obviously have to look at look at their look at enforcement trends, mm-hmm. um, the number of arrests, the type of arrests, and then how they deal with these in, in the court system, because. For, for law enforcement agencies, that's the standard. If, if you if you arrest someone but you can't get a conviction, then you know you're not really doing everything you need to do. So you know, and, and all, agencies have been really good at making making the change. Um, you know, even in Maryland, I know Maryland has not legalized uh, marijuana use, but they've decriminalized marijuana possession mm-hmm. in certain quantities. Mm-hmm. So you know, I know agencies are, are trying to focus a bit more on um, detecting um, drivers who are under the influence of drugs. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important point that people may not understand, that just because it's legalized for your possession of it or your consumption of it, that doesn't make you not guilty of impaired driving if you're pulled over. Um, That that, that the traffic laws still apply, even if... Mm -hmm. Your, you know, and, and if you, you know, that that points it makes a very good point. Look, look at how um, education campaigns have changed. It used to be drunk driving. Yeah, drunk driving now it's impaired driving or it's buzz driving. Mm-hmm. So I think they're trying to change the social image of what a drunk driver is to include drug use, not not just illicit drugs, even over the even prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. You know, you can very well be be under the influence after taking. You know, prescription drug like Vicodin and Oxycontin. Sure, I think. Well, Nitsa's new campaign is mm-hmm. if you feel different, you drive different. So yeah, so exactly. These these campaigns are are in part response, you know, to the, this new trend to legalize you know certain levels of drug use. I think in Colorado, their their campaign when they uh, rolled out their legalization of marijuana was I think it was drive high, get a DUI. And you know, people—they're always people are always uh, responding to campaigns that are you know memorable and everything. So that was just an interesting spin I'm, on things. I'm really, and this is just on a personal level. I'm really interested to see where this is going to be ten years from now, mm-hmm. when we have we'll have you know toddlers who grew up where drugs are legal. You know, what's it? What's going to display itself in, in their behavior as they become young adults? It's going to be really interesting. And that also uh, lends itself to another kind of segue conversation that we've had is that um, there are there are um, broader issues that are presented when marijuana is legalized in terms of how it can impact people, um, in terms of how they are able to get jobs as they become adults, because, you know, again, they've grown up knowing that marijuana, I'm doing air quotes, marijuana is legal, um, which it is legal. There's no air quotes that are needed. It's legal. Um, in some states currently. But um, that does not mean that um, it's going to be, It's it, well, that means that it, it can still impact how you gain employment, yeah, it's, um, how... It's, it's going to exclude you from certain certain jobs like public safety right. um, or even commercial driving. You know, mm-hmm. one of the recommendations we made in the Chattanooga, Tennessee crash mm-hmm. of 2015 um, was for to change how drug testing, pre-employment drug testing, is done. Mm-hmm. So you know, we 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 made a recommendation for HHS to I think to uh, develop um, testing standards in, in head drug testing because mm-hmm. it gives a longer gives a longer window of of of, of use. Yep. 
And I know you've shared with us that even within the law enforcement community that there are there's a precedent for, you know, your consumption of something like marijuana and your ability to be employed in the law enforcement oh, community. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, a lot of people will, it's, it's amazes me that will go to college um, with the intent of becoming in, involved in law enforcement or, or some other public safety job mm-hmm. um, the entire while using drugs. And then and they're surprised when they get to the door and say, oh, drug use, you're disqualified permanently. You know, certain... Certain disqualifications cannot be undone. So, um, you know, maybe that's an opportunity that we, that we, as a society, we can educate kids in, in school what drug use really means. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Well, I also wanted to piggyback on something you said, just because Stephanie said, just because marijuana is legal in some states, it doesn't mean that you can drive impaired, and that's also true for prescription drugs. Mm. Uh, in the case of the. Konkan accident, I think arguably his um, abuse of clonazepam actually affected him uh, just as much or more than the marijuana did. So just because you're prescribed something, it doesn't mean that you, that you, should, um, you should be able to just drive. You, you, mm-hmm. you, know, you really have to look at the directions or the instructions and see whether it will impair you Mm-hmm. Because the impairment that could come from a prescription drug could be just as serious as it is from an illegal drug. And that's a that's a really good reminder. Um, you know, we trust what our doctors prescribe to us as, you know, things that will help us in terms of whatever's ailing us. But it's important for medical um, providers to um, understand the impact that these medicines that are being prescribed can have on driving and then have that conversation with the patient. Or, you know, this could just be a plug in general. If you are, you know, prescribed a medication, um, fellow fair listeners out there, um, and you want to know if it's going to impact your driving, have that conversation with your doctor and say, you know, I need to drive during these hours. Um, Can you tell me, is this going to impact my driving? Or when can I take my medication so that it doesn't impact my driving, if that's an option. And taking the warning seriously. I Mm -hmm. think a lot of people forget that that, you know, don't operate heavy machinery. If you're taking this, your car is a piece of heavy machinery. It's not, you know, a lot of of people don't don't realize that, you know, doing so puts you puts you in a a very serious legal jeopardy. Mm -hmm. Because if you if you crash your car or hurt or killed someone, you know, you're not treated differently because you're using prescribed medication. I mean, if you're stopped by a law enforcement officer and and um, it, it's not an excuse to say, "Oh, I was prescribed this medicine by right. the by your doc by my doctor." It's mm-hmm. it's still impaired driving, and you could go to jail. And you know, again, prescribed or over the counter, there are medis- medications that you can get just by going into the drugstore and picking it up off the shelf that can impair you just as much as these other prescribed medications. Yeah, we can think a plug for our medical officers who I know have mm-hmm. educated me on the idea of over the counter um, prescriptions, especially you know things like your allergy medicine that you know more of us probably take than than we would like to, but. Um, just knowing that even something as simple as that, as, a, as your allergy medicine for seasonal allergies that you take every day, really could be an impairing substance as well. Well, I think we are uh, getting close to wrapping up. And I just want to, uh, well, before I wrap up, I'll ask Stephanie if she has any final questions for our guests. I don't, but I think we should offer Raphael and Kenny one last opportunity to share anything that we haven't covered yet or a last thought for listeners. Well, I... <laughs> I wanted to just uh, do a shout out to the other investigators in the Concon crash. Um, Dave Pereira, who was the vehicle specialist. Dave Rayburn, who was our highway specialist. Um, our IIC at the time, Jennifer Morrison. Um, and also Ron Kaminsky, who was our survival factors and crashworthiness specialist. Um, it was through their efforts that we were able to come uh, to the conclusions we came up with. And finally, I want to uh, thank Don Carroll, who is the project manager for this, and who actually developed most of the recommendations that we came up with. He his um, he was a former officer, and he has. And this is something that's uh, very close to his heart: mm-hmm. is is um, stopping drug impaired driving. Mm-hmm. Great, yeah, Kenny. Well, I want to thank you for the opportunity to participate. It's been a very interesting discussion, and hopefully someone can uh, benefit from this. I think so. I think this was a great discussion, and we thank you for your time. Yeah, Um, thanks, guys. Um, As with all of our 
crashes. Um, they're very uh, tragic and sad, and we can only hope that the recommendations that are issued are implemented and therefore uh, preventing future tragedies such as these. We are going to be taking a holiday break from the podcast, just so our listeners are are aware. We will be taking a break until mid-January when we will come back and we will be talking then about the uh, release of our 2019-2020 most wanted list of transportation safety improvements. So we hope that our listeners have a safe and happy holiday and happy new year. Um, designate a sober driver if you're going to be celebrating or volunteer to be the sober driver. And we want to avoid any other uh, future crashes for impairment. I want to thank my guests one more time, Kenny Bragg and Raphael Marshall, and a shout out to James Anderson for being the wonderful producer that he is. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for joining us on Behind the Scene at NTSB. Subscribe to and like us on your favorite podcast platform. Make sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And don't forget, you can always find us at ntsb.gov. Thank you and bye.